First Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll read just enough to kind of get us rolling out of the starting gate. I will tell you as we get into this passage, this is not a section of Scripture you will hear preached on very often. It's a challenging section of Scripture just from an understanding of what Paul is trying to say. So a lot of churches will just avoid this passage altogether. It's got some incredibly important things to say. Some of it is more culture-related. Some of it is eternally related. And some of it, we just shake our heads and go, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? So I believe that you'll be blessed for the study of his word. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, speaking the word, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. I know, you're with me, church. You're right. Now you're going, okay, pastor, now we see what you're talking about. Let's read a little bit more just to increase to the confusion. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I think we can stop there. Uh, that's sufficient confusion enough, right? Aren't you glad you came to the church? So having read that, we'll just drop down. We'll pick up at verse 17 and we'll go on from there. How about that? Can we do that? No, no. My hope is that you don't leave here more confused than when we just read it, but that we kind of sort some of this out and understand what in the world Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what he's saying to us. But you can see why in our day and age, in the culture we live in, why a passage in the Bible that talks about roles of women, roles of men, leadership, headship, why you can see why this would be, in some areas, a very contentious passage. Can we understand that? But you hang out. Wait till we get done. I think you'll be giving God all the glory by the time we finish. At least that's my goal. So, are you feeling gracious this morning? Uh Uh-huh. All right. You'll be gracious with me, right, church? All right. Let's do this. Let's do this. The Bible, I think most of you would agree with me, is a really amazing book. It is the best-selling book of all time, and for good reason. It includes beautiful poetry as well as world history. It speaks to the topics of war and politics and morality and government and family and identity and eternity and psychology and geography, and science. It describes things of the past and predicts the things coming in the future. Its 40 different authors were farmers, fishermen, shepherds, and kings. Some wrote from the palace and some wrote from the prison. They lived on three different continents, wrote in three different languages, and spanned a time of 1,600 years. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, as of 1995, the Bible was the best-selling book in the history of the world with 5 billion copies being sold. At least some part of the Bible 
has been translated into 3,312 languages, and the whole Bible, according to the United Bible Society, has been translated fully into 670 languages. Interestingly, in our culture, in our generation, 2017, 7.9 million Bibles were downloaded. Yet, while it's been translated into many languages, it's never been revised relative to its content. We don't have one version that was appropriate for first century Middle East, and now we have to revise it, change it to apply to 21st century America. We don't have one version that's suitable for Eastern culture, and another version suitable for Western culture, one version for the 1950s, another for the 2000s. Try writing a book like that. Try sitting down to pen a book with 39 of your closest friends, with no contact with each other, and write a book that discusses eternity, community, geography, science, all the things I mentioned, and speaks accurately across time and culture. I mean, that is truly a miracle. That's praise God is right. And it's with that backdrop, just the miraculous transcendent nature of the Bible, that we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I'm warning you that the message is going to be heavy on the front end, sort of setting the stage so that when we get to the actual passage, we can move through pretty easily, I believe. So the first is this backdrop of the transcendent nature of the Bible. And we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of it is clear. And some of it speaks to eternal principles, but other parts of it are cultural, and we're going to tease out those things. And we have to remember, as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, chapters 8, 9, and 10 have been talking about responsible use of Christian freedom. It started out discussing meat sacrifice to idols. Can we eat this? Can we do that? How does it affect other people? I might have the right to do it, but if it might offend or cause someone else to stumble, then I should avoid it out of love for them. And that same theme, freedom and community responsibility and love, that same theme is still carrying from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14. So be looking for those themes as we go through the coming chapters. Women especially are addressed in this next section. It seems that women in the Corinthian culture are really enjoying and embracing their freedom. I mean, Doesn't the church and the Bible have a reputation for being male-dominated and chauvinistic? Yeah, it was written in a patriarchal society, and that doesn't apply anymore to our culture. Well, I'll tell you, if you hear someone say that, say, then you've never read the Bible. And if you think it's true that the Bible and Christianity is oppressive to women, then why don't you try traveling somewhere where the Bible isn't endorsed by everybody, isn't endorsed even governmentally? Then you will find women that live under great deals of oppression. At least in America, we have this heritage, and what has formed our culture is biblical truth. So women in Christian cultures actually don't have an oppressed position, but enjoy an elevated position. Read the New Testament. Read about the interaction Jesus has with women. Read about the first person that Jesus comes to in his resurrected body is a woman. I mean, this is radical stuff. In that culture, where women were second-class citizens, where women didn't have rights, To see women elevated is really, truly remarkable in the context of the culture of the Bible. But the women in Corinth were enjoying their freedom to the point where they were crossing some cultural lines of modesty. And so Paul is reining back in some of the practices that have developed. The women are saying, hey, we're free in Christ. We have the freedom to participate, the freedom to learn, the freedom to engage with God and with others. And it went to a bad place. 
And they were taking liberties that were then becoming offensive in the culture that they were in. Remember, Corinth was an amazingly immoral place to live. And it seems that among the women, there was a move toward more promiscuity and more immorality. And it was really causing trouble. I'm free, you're free, but we're not free to humiliate one another. Would we agree with that? Love will not let me humiliate you. Because I love you. Why would you want to humiliate someone you love? So we're going to see the words of respect and disrespect and honor and dishonor, and we'll read some of that as we go through. From chapter 11 to 14, we're going to discuss the topic of order in the public gatherings. When the church gets together, here is how it looks. And Paul's going to address problems with the way people dressed, the way women dressed, the way men dressed, and problems with the Lord's Supper, how they came to the table, problems with the use of spiritual gifts, problems with order in the service. And we're ultimately making our way to chapter 14, verse 33, where God says through the Apostle Paul, let everything be done decently and in order. Beautifully. When things are orderly, they're beautiful. Anybody been to a hyper-charismatic sort of chaotic church service? It doesn't really glorify God. Oh, the Spirit is moving. There might be a Spirit moving, but it's not the Spirit of God. So that's kind of setting the stage. Verse 2, Paul says, Now, Corinthians, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul had a contentious relationship with the Corinthians, but he finds something to praise them about. When Paul came, he brought them the word of God, and he brought to them some of the traditions of the Christian church, specifically baptism. We read about that, I think, in chapter 1, that they were baptizing but then they were having problems with elevating the person that baptized them to an unhealthy place. They were aligning themselves with the person that baptized them. So Paul had to fix that. Baptism is good, but you're doing it wrong. You're practicing it in an inappropriate way. And then we come to communion. That's another tradition he brought up. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 11. Yeah, they were doing communion. But Paul says, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. I mean, you're doing the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper. It's all out of whack. So Paul has to take their traditions and make them orderly and make them represent truly the heart of Christ. You know, we're not against tradition. Tradition's a good thing. We like tradition. But the problem is when tradition ceases to represent what it originally meant. Now all of a sudden we do tradition for the sake of tradition and the tradition can actually be counterproductive to the cause of Christ. And that's what had happened in their communion. So Paul praises them, but now he's got to bring their gathering kind of back into order, back into a place that's meaningful to Christ. So verse 3, he says, but I want you to know, you've kept the traditions, but, verse 3 says, here's what you need to know. That the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. Get the boxing gloves out. And the head of Christ is God. Now put them away. God creates order. We have a God not of chaos. Aren't you glad for that? We don't have a God of chaos. We have a God of order. And that's the subject of the next four chapters, to do everything decently and in order. When you look at the universe, the world we live in, I downloaded this from the Billy Graham website. The trouble with our modern thinking is that we have a conception of God that he is haphazard with no set rules of life for salvation. Ask the astronomer if God is a haphazard God. He will tell you that every star moves with precision in its celestial path. Ask the scientist if God is a haphazard God. 
he or she will tell you that his formulas and equations are fixed and that to ignore the laws of science would be a fool's folly. If the laws in the material realm are so fixed and exact, is it reasonable that God could afford to be haphazard in the spiritual realm where eternal destinies of souls are at stake? The answer would be no, it's not reasonable. Just as God has equations and rules in the material realm, God has equations and rules in the spiritual. Look at the Old Testament description of this nomadic group of 2,600,000 people coming out of Egypt. And now Moses has to organize a camping trip that's going to last 40 years across the desert. Any campers in here? You guys go camping? Just to organize the four of us in our family and get the tent loaded up. I mean, it's like a, a massive undertaking. Now, can you imagine if the Israelites camping in the wilderness and God moving them from one place to another, to another, to another, 2.6 million people. What if God says, okay, Moses, here's how we're going to play it. I'm going to give you a whistle. And when I count to three, blow the whistle and say, ready, set, go. 2.6 million people. What would that look like? Chaos or order? Chaos. So God gives instruction so that they can move orderly and safely and beautifully. As a matter of fact, there's some really cool things buried in there in the book of Numbers in the way that the tribes camp. If you were to look down on the camping of the tribes as they set up camp, you would see, based on the numbers of peoples in the tribes and how they were laid out around the tabernacle, it would look like a cross. I love to sing the Phil Wickham song that says, who brings our chaos back into order? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's an ordering verse. In my life, In your life, when we become Christians, God speaks order, gives order into my chaotic thinking. He gives order into chaotic relationships. He gives order into chaotic priorities. He tells us where we fit with regard to him and the universe around us and the world around us and the church and government and family and all these relationships, even the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is a perfect unity with a perfect order to it. That is the example for the relationships we enjoy. As a matter of fact, psychologists have found a link between disorganization and chaos with depression and anxiety. So Paul says, verse 3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. He introduces the word head, and he uses it in two different, very confusing ways. One way he uses it He uses it in a literal way, meaning the thing, the knob on top of my shoulders that contains four pounds of gray matter that makes me conscious and helps me think. But then we use it figuratively as well. And we understand that. You can say that person is the headmaster of that private school. Or that person, well, they're the head of the math department. Well, that person, he's the head coach of the football team. So you realize that he's the head coach, just not one giant roly-poly head with a helmet on. It speaks of a position, a role. Even Paul uses the word head to describe Christ in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ himself, from whom the whole body is joined together and connected by every joint and ligament as every part effectively does its work and grows, building itself up in love. So Paul uses this body illustration and the head is Christ. And what does Christ do for the body? He directs it, says it right here. He's responsible so that every part does its part, works together in unity and harmony, so the whole thing can grow in love. So head 
doesn't just mean I'm the one that barks orders and everybody else has to follow and do what I say. The head is responsible. It does have a position. God didn't put our head under our feet. He put our head at the top. But we also have in the body a heart. And if you had to choose head or heart, which would you choose? Well, you can have my head. You can have my heart. You see, God has given this order and he's put husbands as the head of their home, head of their family. But he's also given a place for the woman. We also need a heart. So the head might be the husband, but in some ways the woman is the heart. And you can't live without either one. The head is the part that's responsible for the coordinated, harmonious movement and cooperation of the parts under its leadership to accomplish growth and enjoy unity and relationship. Would you rather have a head or lungs? How about stomach? Oh, can't live without that. So here's the first thing we have to agree on before we move any further. Being under authority is a role or position statement. It is not a value statement. See, that's where we go. The minute I hear someone's my head, well, I'm inferior to them. They're better than me. They're superior. And look, around the church, I mean, if women stopped serving, this place would come to a grinding halt fast. In creation, God creates equally man and woman, both in the image of God. There's no matter of inferiority, superiority. There's different roles. So being over someone else doesn't make you more valuable inherently than them. And being under someone else doesn't make me less valuable than them. Sometimes those that are under the authority of someone else actually know more about the job than the person who's in authority. You ever been in a job like that where you were an employee, but you knew more than your boss? But yet you had to bite your tongue when they did things that you didn't agree with because they were in charge. So you bite your tongue or you lose your job. I think a great way to look at this, and this has really helped me a lot, is looking at dancing. How many of you are willing to admit, yeah, I took in an episode or two of Dancing with the Stars? Anybody? And so, okay, some people are, we ain't raising hands, Pastor. It brought ballroom dancing to the forefront of television for a long time, and it's beautiful, isn't it? So, maybe if you didn't watch Dancing with the Stars, but if you've ever been to a wedding and they, they crank up like an old ballroom song, a tango or a cha-cha, and you watch an older couple that's been married for 50 years, and you watch them hit the dance floor, and they move seamlessly. Anybody seen that? My in-laws, Helga's parents, they just dance so beautifully together, and you just watch, and you can't tell who's leading, who's following. It just happens, and they move. How do they move? They move as one. And that's what the Bible says. In marriage, is like dancing, ballroom style. Not this independence and everybody standing in their own little spot. We're talking about social dancing, relational dancing. I found this article that I thought was so cool. It's called Lead and Follow, The Secret to Dance Partnering. And it says, the most difficult thing to master in ballroom dance or any other kind of partner dancing is not the steps, it's the interaction with your partner. That's the challenge. Lead and follow is the secret to getting two partners dancing smoothly together. It's simply impossible. Now listen carefully and think about marriage as I read these words. It's simply impossible for two people dancing in close contact to move seamlessly if each person is making their own decisions, choosing their own timing, and doing their steps independently. I just described your marriage, some of you. 
There's two people sharing space but operating independently. It'll never work. They must coordinate their moves perfectly. And the only way to achieve that is for one person to direct the moves and the other person to follow. If that's true in dancing, how much more in a marriage relationship? Dances like the tango, salsa, swing, ballroom are social dances. And in that kind of dancing, there's no set routine. It's living. It's organic. They're responding to each other and to the music. The dancers improvise their steps according to the music that's being played. That's what life is like, right? Sometimes, you know, you're married five years and the music changes. And you go, "Uh uh-oh, they're playing a different song now. Now the kids are going off to college. The music changes. Now they're getting married and now they're having kids. Now we're grandparents. The music's always changing. And so as a couple, it's very important to learn to lead and follow, to operate together in unity and harmony as one, with one leading, one following, seamlessly. That's what makes marriage beautiful. And unfortunately, it's so uncommon in the world now because of misconceptions and because of rejection of order. The dancers improvise their steps according to the music being played. Obviously, if both partners try to do that, it would be a recipe for chaos. So it makes sense to appoint one person to decide what the steps will be, and the other person follows. That's the concept of lead and follow. So it's interesting, they say in the article, so who leads, question mark, isn't that what we want to know? Well, you've got one person traveling forward, one person traveling backward in dancing. Guess who should lead? The one who's facing forward. Obviously, that's the correct answer. Now, this article says politically incorrect, though it may be in dancing, usually that's the man. Even in dancing, the man takes the lead role. Now, there's some really good nuggets in here that I think apply also to marriage. Learning to follow is not easy for any woman, especially if you've been dancing solo all your life. The re- <laughs> I think that was a man that groaned. <laughs> the reason is that as you progress, you'll learn that partner dancing isn't about set routines. That's why it's important to get used to following right from the start, even when you know the routine. Because learning, listen carefully, ladies, learning to allow your partner to lead isn't easy. Women say, amen. Amen. If you're following correctly, you won't take a step until your partner tells you to. Some of the women are going, all right, you had me, pastor, but you're losing me now. You're losing me. He may do that by pressure with his hand, by shifting his weight, or even by making a hand signal. But whatever the signal is, you must follow it instantly. Oh, pastor, you're still losing me now. It's getting worse practice and you'll be able to respond in a split second so fast that your audience won't even notice a delay. So this is how the article defines following. I think it fits. Following means, ladies, if he doesn't give the signal, you do nothing. If he gives the wrong signal, I mean, according to what you know he should do, then you obviously step on his toes, correct him, and force him to go the right direction. If he gives the wrong signal, You forget what you were expecting to do and follow the new signal instead. No exceptions. It's hard, especially in this day and age, to surrender so much power to a guy. I didn't write this. Especially if you're in a beginner's class and the man isn't giving you clear signals. So some of you feel like you're in a beginner's class. I mean, some of you are in a beginner's class. I mean, when Helga and I got married... We were in the beginner's class. We took ballroom dancing as an engaged couple because we knew we had the first dance. It was a tragedy. It was a mess because we didn't really know each other that well. I and mean, we'd been dating a year. And, but who knows each other after a year, right? 
takes years to develop that oneness. We look more like a middle school dance. You know, like, you know, kind of just trying to get out of this thing alive, not embarrass myself. But what happens between the middle school dance and the 50th anniversary where the husband and wife dance together seamlessly on the dance floor? It's years of practice, learning to lead, learning to follow. And everybody starts out in the beginner's class. I mean, I married a woman who had her own business, played ice hockey, worked with concrete. I mean, I married a capable woman. And when we got married, I mean, she had some skills. And when we got married, I had some problems. (laughs) I didn't know how to do nothing for myself. I'm lucky to be alive. I can't believe I survived bachelorhood. But it would have been easy for me to just sit back and say, yo, you lead. But as we were walking with the Lord, the Lord did a work and has continues to do a work. 23 years of marriage, we continue as the music changes to sort out how it looks for me to lead and for her to follow. And believe me, we've had some challenges. That's probably the most challenging area for married couples to sort out. So been a real blast. I mean, I got my toes stepped on some. She's got her toes stepped on some, but we work it out. And we don't neglect the order. We don't neglect the pattern, but we embrace it and we work toward God's plan for it. So let's go to the guys now, the importance of leading. The lead, the man, has a much tougher job than the follower. Sure, it takes skill for the follower to read the signals given by the lead and react to them with split-second precision. And she often has more complicated steps to execute and in high heels, I would also add. But it's up to the lead, listen guys, to remember the choreography if there is any, or worse, to make up the whole dance on the fly from his repertoire of moves. (laughs) This is fun, isn't it? Man, he got some moves, does he? To whatever music is being played, and then to transmit that instruction to the follower, the wife, clearly. Male beginners are often timid about taking control, especially if they're not 100% sure of the steps themselves. Unfortunately, That means female beginners give up trying to follow and start dancing their own steps. So the men aren't forced to learn to lead, and it all becomes a vicious and very ugly cycle. How many of you understand that principle? So for the men, leading means, listen carefully, guys, leading means using just enough pressure to give a signal, but not so much that you're pushing your partner around. If you're using force to move your partner, you're doing it wrong. So now we come back and we read again, the head of every man is Christ. Paul makes this simple statement. How does a man make up his repertoire of moves? Where does a man get his moves? The secret of godly leadership of the husband is that he first has to understand what it means to follow. If a man never gets following he will never get leading. But a man that understands that he's in submission, yielded to the leadership of Christ, that's the kind of man any woman would be glad to yield herself to. How does a man know how to lead? How does a man know where to go? How does a man know what the steps are, what the music is? How does a man know where the dance floor is? Only because the head of every man is Christ. If you get that wrong... Guys, guys are too passive, passive in their relationship with Christ. 
passive in their pursuit of God, passive in their diving in to understand how life works, how marriage works, how parenting works, how community works, how church works. Too passive. I'm going to do things my way. No one's going to tell me how to do it. I'll figure it out. I'm not going to ask for direction. Guys, can I talk to the guys for a minute? There's a movie, a ballroom movie with Antonio Banderas in it, and it's called Take the Lead. So I think God's message to the men in Corinth is not take the lead, but know that you have the lead. Step into it. That's your God-given role to lead. Now, with that being said, Paul says the head of every woman is man. Now, that's where we put the gloves on. Not every man, it's her husband. The challenge we face as we come to this is we recognize that the backdrop of this is centuries and centuries of abuse and neglect and harm and belittling and demoralizing and dehumanizing of women by men in general. And so knowing that and confessing that, we come to a passage like this and we say, no way. But just because there's been abuses doesn't mean we throw out the plan. Just because you've taken your car to a mechanic and they've botched it up doesn't mean you quit going to the mechanic. There's a good plan there. So that's the challenge is to navigate this. We've got the passivity of men on one side. We've got the centuries and cultural abuse of women on the other side. So into that, God says, the plan has never changed. The head of woman is man. So ladies, God will not hold you accountable for how you led your family. He will hold you accountable for how you followed the lead of your husband. So for the ladies, this says, choose your partner wisely. Because we get into it and say, well, I'll just teach him to lead. I'll marry him. We'll get into a relationship and then I'll teach him how to lead. It doesn't say the head of every man is woman. It says the head of every man is Christ. You can't be Christ for your husband. He has to learn to lead from Christ. And you got to get out of the way and let him do that. You're accountable to follow. So you want to choose a guy who clearly knows where the dance floor is, that he's in a dance with Christ himself. And if he's not there, then choose someone else. But you go, Pastor, I'm already dancing. What do I do? You give honor to your husband. You step back. You keep putting him in that place of leadership. Don't operate independently. Don't make decisions without him. Include him. Engage him. And encourage him to be what God has called him to be. That puts you in the role to be what God has called you to be. Now, for any women that might really struggle with this, uh, I don't know if I can submit, I don't know if I can do that. The next verse says, the next part says, the head of Christ is God. God puts women in the position of Christ relative to his relationship with God. You're in the same yielded position. Let me ask you this, is Jesus less valuable than God the Father? Somebody say no, no. The healthy relational authority set out for us by the Trinity definitively is that there is equality and harmony with order of authority. And that's how healthy relationships work. We think, it's oh, if nobody leads, that'll be healthy. Even in a parade with two cars, one has to take the lead. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. But the son yields himself to the father and says, I don't do anything unless the father tells me. I don't say anything unless the father says it. And in the garden, Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
a willing, yielded submission to the plan of the Father for the salvation of mankind. Now, we're going to roll through the cultural application of this. So now, that's the principle. Now here's how it applies. In Corinth, every man praying or prophesying, having his head, his literal head covered, something on his head, dishonors or shames down, disrespects his head, figurative. Who's his head? Jesus. So if a man puts something on his head, it's dishonoring to Jesus in that culture. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head, literal head, uncovered, dishonors her head, figuratively, her husband. For that is one of the same as if her head were shaved. So the first thing to notice, before we even get to the covered, uncovered, shame, respect thing, first notice that men and women participated together in the early church service. That a woman could pray to God in public. And that a woman could prophesy. She could speak the word of God. And a man could. And we have women singing here on the stage. We had Heather come up and offer the prayer as we started. And I tried to get her to wear a veil. She wouldn't wear it. And none of you said, look at that disrespectful woman up there praying. Did any of you even notice? Of course not, because in our culture, a veil over the head is not a sign of respect for a husband. It's not part of our culture. So women can have these roles, but within that role, she is still responsible to be respectful to her husband. And that's what they're dealing with. Women embracing their freedom and actually acting in a culturally disrespectful way, shameful way to themselves and to their husbands, and ultimately to God. So to the men, God says, when you pray or prophesy, you're reminded that you are responsible directly to Christ for your leadership. You don't have anything between you and Christ. You're responsible directly to Christ for your leadership. Are you hearing me, guys? So that's why you don't wear anything. We don't have to go through a priest. Guys, you have a direct line to God. And that women do as well, but Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. To the women, there's a reminder that she has a husband in her life. She does not act independently or disrespectfully toward her husband. Now in Corinth, her behavior was related to the way she dressed as it related respect to her husband. Now there's no biblical prescription for how we should dress. You can't turn to the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, here's the dress code for guys, Here's the dress code for girls, because that would not transcend culture. I mean, this may come as a shock. Jesus did not wear a tie and a sport coat. I know it's shocking, and today it'd be appropriate for me to go to Walmart in a toga. I mean, it might fit in there. No one might notice. Someone would probably go, oh, cool, look what that guy's wearing. But we don't have a prescription for outward dress. The exhortation is modesty. What's appropriate in one culture, not appropriate in another. What is sexually provocative in one culture is not in another. What's covered versus what's uncovered, you go to tribal Africa, there's a lot that's uncovered, and they don't seem to be bugged by it. But if we go and we bring someone from a tribe in Africa, we resettle them here in Fluvanna, and they dressed as they do in the plains of Africa with all their uncoveredness, it would be a little alarming to us, wouldn't it? Because to us, It's provocative. In some cultures, showing the sole of your foot is extremely offensive. So you would never sit at the table with your feet up. I mean, if I crossed my leg here like this in the Middle East, there would be a corporate groan 
because everybody would be offended because my soul is dirty and that's offensive. So culture is unique. Culture can be really confusing, but we're dealing with the Corinthian culture. For the Corinthians, a woman's hair was considered provocative and alluring. So a married woman, by law, would wear a veil, not the kind of veil you see in Middle Eastern countries where the whole face and all you see are the eyes, but just a gentle veil that would go over the head, and that represented that I'm a married woman. By law, that was the legal prescription for her dress. The Roman law dictated what your status was, and that was demonstrated by how you dressed. Your clothes are your status. So a married woman, legal distinction, she would wear a veil over her hair, covering that part that was considered provocative and alluring that was only for her husband. So a woman divorced from promiscuity, by law, wore just a plain toga. Her head was uncovered, and it symbolized the shameful loss of status. So a woman in public without a veil is worse than just a woman who takes off her wedding ring. It's a woman who takes off her wedding ring and dresses provocatively to catch the attention of other men saying, I'm open for business. That's disrespectful, shameful to her, and shameful to her husband. And in our culture, in Fluvanna County, it's not the veil. What is modesty in our culture? What is it that in a woman would be considered alluring or provocative? Those parts should be covered. And things we don't consider alluring or provocative, in some cultures, it's the knee. You got to cover your knee because that's provocative. Go figure, right? Culture's crazy, but the knee is sexy. So they cover it. I know, weird, right? Are y'all blushing or is it just me? So how short is too short? How tight is too tight? How low cut is too low cut? These are where culture can be difficult and we avoid making law about this stuff because who gets to decide how short is too short? So this is a matter of modesty. I tell young girls, ask your dads, wives, ask your husbands. It's difficult, I think, but possible to dress stylishly and modestly. First Peter, Paul says, women, let your adornment not be merely our. It doesn't say you can't dress up, you can't look nice. But there's not a problem with a woman dressing up, looking nice. Ladies, have you ever looked at another woman and said, well, she's really crossed the line with the way she's dressed. There's some things that are too tight, too low, too skimpy, too uncovered. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one of the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So again, under Roman law, the punishment for adultery under the law was having your head shaved. So what Paul says to them, look, ladies, if you're going to throw off the veil and be immodest and try to attract other men's attention besides your husband, which would lead to adultery, then you might as well just shave your head because you're an adulteress. That's what you're doing. So if you're going to do that, you're going to throw the veil off, might as well shave your head. So that's what he's saying there. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. And men, the way you care for your wives will demonstrate how well you care. The more glorious she is, the better care she gets. The better care she gets, the more glorious she is. The woman is a sense of pride for her husband. He looks at her and says, oh, I'm so proud of the wife God has given me. And that has to do more with the inner woman than the outer The woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. So Paul goes back again, eternal truth, back to the order of creation. God creates Adam from what? From the dust of the earth. 
This is why little boys like dirt. <laughs> Guys, are you with me? We relate to dirt. That's why we have multiple hooks in our bedroom. This is the clothes that are sort of clean. This is, I've worn them a couple times, but they're still okay. I can get by with this. I mean, it's dirty, but I can get by with it. So we've got the order. Because when you wash it, that smells too good, and we don't know where it is after that. We've lost it. But that's something different with woman. I mean, he could have said, okay, Adam from the dirt, Eve from the dirt. I'm going to put you in a ring together. I'm going to give you some gloves and duke it out. And whoever's still standing at the end gets to be in charge, which also describes some of your marriages. And chaos, argue about everything. But God does something truly amazing. He creates Adam complete. But then to build Eve, he takes something away from Adam. He builds Eve And then he completes the picture again by bringing back to Adam what he took away. Isn't that incredible? So man likes to play in the dirt. Woman likes to be by man's side because she was created from his rib. So the place for woman is by the side of her man. God creates all his stuff, all creation, and everything is good until he gets to the man. He said, "Uh uh-oh, not good. Because he knew Adam would be in the garden and he'd be going, hey, Eve, look what I can do. And Eve would be going, nine, one, one. But the word helper, it sounds so inferior, doesn't it? When God says, I'm going to give man a helper comparable to him. But helper is the word etzer in Hebrew. And it's the majority of usage relationship between God and Israel. That God is Israel's etzer, strong rescuer. And God knew man would need a strong rescuer because we get ourselves in trouble and we don't need you to tell us all the time what idiots we are. We just need you to help us lovingly and gently and carefully. All right. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's clear. Let's move on. (laughs) Pastor Steve, how do angels get in the mix? Nobody has any idea what Paul meant. I don't know. Paul, thanks a lot for 1 Corinthians 11.10, because I don't know. There's a few options mostly relating to whether or not angels are present watching our worship, or whether or not the angels, the fallen angels of Genesis 6 were allured, according to tradition, by the uncovered heads of the beautiful women that led to the judgment and the flood, could represent the angels who left their first abode. They stepped out of their place with God and fell with Satan. But one author actually suggests that this word should be translated messengers, not angels. It's the same word can be translated both ways. And it actually indicates a group of men in Roman culture and under Roman law that were responsible for policing the dress of women. And that role really existed. So it could be that because of the scouts that were out there looking to see how women were dressing, you have to keep the veil on because it's illegal not to wear it. Nevertheless, verse 11, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. God, his order and his wisdom is absolutely stunning. There is this mutual dependence of man upon woman and woman upon man. The man can't say, we don't need those women. And the women can't say, as may be popular in our culture, we don't need men. The perpetuation of the human race is dependent upon relationship between man and woman. So in the beginning, God creates woman and he brings woman from the man. But ever since that time, 
every man that's ever drawn breath, ever lived on the face of the earth, from Alexander the Great to Donald Trump, yes, has had a mother. And the hand that rocks the cradle does what, ladies? Rules the world. So in an interesting sense, God gives man leadership, but God gives woman influence. Isn't that cool? And from a biological standpoint, you still need 23 male chromosomes and 23 female chromosomes. They've tried. If it really doesn't matter, if gender doesn't matter, then maybe we just need 46 female chromosomes together, have a baby. Or maybe we can put 46 male chromosomes together, have a baby. Guess what? In neither scenario does it ever work. The chromosomes know the difference. The only way it will ever work, has ever worked, is with male and female. The DNA knows that the head of a woman is man, but every man comes through woman through the relationship between man and woman. Amazing. So he closed up. He says, look, Corinthians, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The answer would be no. Does even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? The answer would be yes. So there's still something in nature. Listen, even in the transgender community, there's a recognition that long hair is connected to femininity and short hair is connected to masculinity. Again, this is a general thing. There's women with short hair. There's men with long hair. We don't get legalistic about these things. But there's a general understanding that even in nature, estrogen, testosterone, all these things have to do with the ability of hair growth. I mean, look, let's be honest. Male pattern baldness is beautiful, isn't it? But verse 15 says, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. There's something about a woman and her hair. So Paul's just saying, look, there's just a difference between male and female. There's biological differences. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So you can't turn to the book of Ephesians or 1 Thessalonians or anywhere else in Paul's writings or anywhere else in the New Testament and find a edict to the church for women to be veiled, men to be unveiled. It's not a thing that is a prescription across all culture, all time. Amen? Amen.